Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a home for independent, intellectually-oriented podcasts. This month, we are promoting the work of our glorious leader, Royfield Brown. Royfield does a number of podcasts, all of them really great. This month, I'm going to mention Friday 15, a show that makes 15 minutes for enjoying quality music and quality conversation, which adds up to 30 minutes in total, just in case you're bad at math. As some of you may be aware, one of my many low-key obsessions other than history is music. And so I can say with some measure of authority that Royfield has amazing taste, and his show always features quality tunes from a variety of great genres. The conversation is light but engaging, and works well with the musical selections. For those with a more historical bent, his Ten American Presidents show is also great, as is How Jamaica Conquered the World and Mid-Atlantic. He also has a show called Dumpty Dum about a British radio drama, which I've never heard of, but you know, The Archers, I'm told it's an industry standard. Anyway. It has been nearly a thousand years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still they continue to fascinate us, from hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes. The Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Yes, the legendary stories, vibrant myths, and rich history of the Vikings can still be seen today in our popular culture. Join Noah Tetzner as he rediscovers the lost history of the Vikings in his podcast, The History of Vikings. That is the History of Vikings podcast, which is available where all quality podcasts are put up for free by podcatchers. And the website is thehistoryofvikings.com. Now, if you're listening to my show, you're probably already a smart, good-looking, and moral person. But if you're looking to develop yourself further, might I suggest OnlineGreatBooks.com. If you're interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors like Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza, and more, go to OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools, and a dedicated community of fellow readers help keep you on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. We begin with Homer and progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, and the moderns. Each month, you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar by a trained Socratic host. 
go online to greatbooks.com and join the VIP list and receive an executive book summary, a digest of the reading list, and more. If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to onlinegreatbooks.com and enter the promo code WIT, that's W-I-T, to get 25% off your subscription to onlinegreatbooks.com. Joining up will be a great thing for you to do for yourself, and also it will help me out as I get some money from you joining up. So, go check out onlinegreatbooks.com. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Rome, sometime around the year 384, while in a puritanical lather. Go seldom in public. If you would seek the martyrs, seek them in your own chamber. Let your food be moderate, your stomach never full. There are many women who, though sober in their cups, are drunk with an excess of food. When you rise to midnight prayer, let your belly not groan with repletion, but with emptiness. Read assiduously, learn many things. Let sleep come upon you, book in hand, and let your sinking cheek rest upon the holy page. Fast daily, eat but moderately. It is useless to go empty for two or three days if the fast is followed by gluttony. Repletion deadens the mind. A ground well watered buds forth into the thorns of lust. If ever your body sighs for the flower of youth, if, as you lie on your couch after eating, the sweet pageants of fleshy lust tempt you, then seize the shield of faith with which you shall quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Be as a nightly grasshopper. All night make your bed swim and water your couch with your tears. Watch, and be as the sparrow on the housetop. Sing with the spirit, and sing with understanding also. As the psalmist says, I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Should I not rightly weep and groan when the serpent would again tempt me with too forbidden fruit? When he would dash me forth from paradise of my virginity and clothe me with garments of skin? Let marriage have its proper time and title. My virginity is dedicated to Mary and to Christ. Excerpt from St. Jerome's Advice to Nuns Jerome was exposed to scandal when one of the nuns, who followed his advice, starved herself to death. Sometime between the years 1110 and 1115, during the summer, taking advantage of natural light, while enjoying a pleasant breeze. For he promised me for his part that if I became a monk, I should taste of the joys of heaven with the innocents after my death. And so, a boy of ten, I crossed the English Channel and came into Normandy as an exile, unknown to all, knowing no one. Like Joseph in Egypt, I heard a language I could not understand. But thou didst suffer me through thy grace to find nothing but kindness and friendship among strangers. I was received as an oblate in the abbey of St. Evreux by the venerable abbot Miner in the eleventh year of my life. The name of Vitalis was given me in place of my English name, which sounded harsh to the Normans. Excerpt from Saxon-Norman monk Oderic Vitalis's Ecclesiastical History. All quotes in today's episode were themselves taken from Those Who Prayed, an anthology of medieval source material edited by Peter Spear. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hi, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 43, Class Structure Part 2, Those Who Prayed Part 2, Monks and the Act of Monking. Last time out, we focused on the origins and structure of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in the early Middle Ages, with its priests, bishops, archbishops, and pope. 
This structure had its origins in antiquity and was based on the idea of apostolic succession from the companions of Jesus, but it was not the strictly centralized structure we think of today. In much the same way, European feudal lords gathered most functional power into a decentralized, regional power structure, the bishops had most of the power in the early days of the Catholic Church, and the ability of the Pope or even an archbishop to interfere in a bishop's territory was fairly limited. We will get into the whys and wherefores next episode, but suffice it to say that while the Pope had a great ability to persuade and speak for Christendom, this was based on a public perception of the Pope as a distant but beloved symbol of truth and unity. Needless to say, given that during this period the popes were often corrupt puppets of Roman aristocrats, or even worse, the Greeks, this is probably a case where distance made the heart grow fonder. That said, even if the pope had been a paragon of moral virtue, the idea of a church hierarchy per se was not native to this time and place. The bishop was the center of religious life in the former Roman world, and disputes that crossed the boundaries of a bishop's territory were worked out with the tools of a collegial diplomacy, rather than an imposed authority. This picture of Christianity leaves out a large chunk of what made up the church. In fact, it would be fair to say that in the early Middle Ages, this formal hierarchy of the church did not even constitute the most important part of the community of people who had dedicated their lives to religion. That is why today we will be discussing the history of European monasticism and its relationship with the Catholic hierarchy. This is going to be a bit of a longer episode, but given that the monks were the people who wrote most of the sources from this time period, we have the ability to give a much more 3D picture of how these institutions developed and how the monastics of the church lived, so I think the extra time is warranted. Monasticism was part of Christianity from a very, very, very early stage, and had its origins in the East and in the concept of the hermit. Etymologically speaking, the word monastic derives from a Greek word, mono, meaning alone. The idea of the spiritual hermit leaving civilization and going out into the wilderness to avoid the temptations of the world and commune with the divine is one that probably predates Christianity itself, as does the tendency of these hermits to end up forming the nucleus of spiritual communities. For example, there are the Vedic and Buddhist mystics living in the jungles and mountains of India, Taoist wise men living in caves in China, and Zoroastrian and pagan spiritual leaders communing with the sun and the sky in the vast steppes of Central Asia. It's possible that this kind of mystical need for solitude is core to the human religious experience, at least for those who are very committed. More to the point, there is ample evidence that the roots of modern Christianity may lie in the ascetic Jewish religious groups that blossomed in the wilderness of the Levant during the Second Temple period. The documentary evidence we have of the origins of a strictly Christian monasticism in Egypt around the year 300 follows a familiar narrative for those knowledgeable about world religions. An individual seeks spiritual solace, word gets out about that individual's spiritual progress, and as a result, a community of individuals gather around that person seeking instruction, aid, or even what we might call holiness as a result of osmosis or proximity. Of course, this annoys the hermits to no end, as having a community grow up around you is kind of contrary to the point of being a hermit, you guys. Eventually, these communities establish rules of behavior in order to avoid bringing the temptations of the world into this new community, with greater or lesser levels of success. Podcast footnote. When I say monastic or monastery in today's episode, we're all going to assume one thing when we first think about it. We're going to assume that the people who make up these communities are dudes. This is, in fact, not the case. The Greek word here indicates solitude, not necessarily masculinity. In fact, female monks, or nuns in the parlance of our times, were common from the very start. In fact, to me at least, it's an open question as to when exactly the near obsession with sexual purity entered Christianity. Jesus, after all, hung out with prostitutes. 
Meanwhile, in the same time period, the upper-class Roman literati spent their time freaking out about the sexual morality of their time and bemoaning how the youth had given up their virtue in the name of sexual gratification. In any case, Christianity was born into a Hellenistic world, and so this preoccupation, wherever it originated, ended up baked into the cake fairly early. As a result, the nuns of the early monastic communities did have to live apart from the men within the community, and chastity was considered a virtue. But they were not really looked down upon or turned away just because they were women per se. Much of the early spread of Christianity was due to the efforts of women, and many of the early martyrs were women. But as the philosophical worldview of the Romans entered the picture, women ended up being more and more marginalized. So in all I'm about to say, remember, monastics were not all monks. Many were nuns. End podcast footnote. We can take a few things from this narrative of the hermit collecting a community around him despite his best efforts. First, as it is a narrative, there is a danger that this is a trope. Given the dearth of evidence, it's entirely possible that the first Christian monastic communities were just converted Jewish ascetic communities. We have no really good evidence either way. But more important to our story is that, whatever the actual events in the unknowable past, this narrative contains some core thematic truths that will recur repeatedly over the centuries. For the Christian monastic communities, the focus of the lifestyle is on the salvation of the individual through ensuring their relationship with the divine. But the world would not leave these men and women to their devotions. The very lifestyle they lived came to provide spiritual and secular services that drew communities to them. This created a tension between individual perfection and communal need that underpinned the very foundations of the monastic community and would pursue monasticism for the rest of the Middle Ages. Monasticism moved to the Latin West fairly early, being conventionally dated to about 340 when St. Athanasius visited Italy with two monks from his original Egyptian community. These monks established monasteries, thus beginning an Eastern-oriented Greek-speaking monastic society in Italy that lasted well into the Middle Ages. Eventually, Latin-speaking communities developed as well, and these communities coexisted and cooperated for centuries. Of course, the Latin communities were better able to spread in the Latin West, and by 415 there were Latin communities all over southern France, with new ones being founded in more and more northerly parts of Europe every year. The most famous of these orders was founded by one Benedict of Nursia, around the year 500, on a mountain south of Rome called Monte Cassino. Benedict was an Italian, in case you didn't know where Nerissa is, and got his education in Rome. Historians now agree that his fame is mostly one built on hindsight, at the time, Monte Cassino was a fairly unremarkable monastery, and the rule that Benedict used to govern his community was cobbled together from bits and pieces of other rules that were common in southern Europe at the time. He wasn't the first one to think of rules. He probably didn't write his entire rule. All the same, his monastic community prospered under the protection of the Pope and the patriarchs, and probably it didn't hurt that they were up on top of a mountain where people couldn't get at them as easily. An important exception was in 540, which was actually fairly soon after the monastery was founded, but ignore that. Uh, in 540, Saracens attacked the monastery, sacked it, and occupied it for several years. This is probably important to our story, as the fleeing monks probably brought copies of Benedict's order to the libraries of Rome while they waited for the Saracens to leave. Let us take a moment to look at the kind of lifestyle monks experienced in these early Latin communities based on what we have from the orders that have survived. In what is going to become a repeating theme in this episode, these continental monasteries show a great amount of variety in the snippets of surviving codes of conduct that we have. Monastic communities that drew their inspiration from the original Egyptian monastic orders were noticeably harsh in terms of the behavior expected of individuals. 
Food and drink were strictly limited. Chastity was required, owning property was not allowed, and much of the day was taken up with prayer, and the remains mostly devoted to heavy physical labor in the lands that supplied the monks with food. All of this was in the name of the monks living in a manner similar to the apostles of Jesus. At this stage, the monasteries were assumed to be autonomous from each other. In many monasteries, violations of the rules were often enforced through the use of brutal corporal punishments. This outline describes maybe the most extreme examples, and I need to stress how much variety there is in the rules that survive. In some places, much of what I just said wasn't true. Certainly the earlier rules are more extreme, but orders that took their inspiration from Greek sources, notably that of St. Benedict, were less heroic in their demands of the individual. Under Benedict's rule, for example, the amount of food allowed was left to the discretion of the individual and the abbot, and also the brothers and sisters in the monasteries were allowed some wine with their meals. Benedict was, after all, an Italian. Under Benedict's system, the abbot was expected to lead by example, as a paternal figure and not as a petty despot. While corporal punishments are common in the records, it should be remembered that such punishments were a common behavior for parents disciplining their beloved children in these times. It should also be noted that penances expected of all Christians would be completely unrecognizable to the modern faithful. Sins were considered communal affronts, likely to bring down the wrath of God upon the entire community. And so confessions were made in public, as were the penances. The penances demanded seemed comically awful by today's standards. It was not uncommon for a congregant to be expected to fast every day for several years to atone for even relatively minor sins. So the punishments inflicted on the monks, while they might seem unbelievable to us now, were actually pretty standard to the expectations of the monks at the time, and they served the greater good of helping the individual monk avoid temptation and live a life of moral purity. Again, this was very explicitly the goal of the monastic life, and many of the codes of this time actually have to caution the brothers and sisters of the monastic communities not to go too far in their private penances. You know, the abbot may beat you a little bit, but these monks and nuns were, like, you know, whipping themselves in ways that could severely damage their health and, you know, just starving themselves for weeks at a time. Practices of this kind of severity was felt to eventually verge on suicide and had to be banned. And uh, similarly, after some soul-searching, it was decided that self-castration was basically cheating. Monks joined these communities for all the reasons anyone does anything. Much of the literature written by the monks themselves described people motivated by, of course, genuine religious zeal. Stories run the gamut from clerics horrified by the laxity of clergy in a major city to knights who rode into the abbey in full battle gear, stripped naked in view of the congregation, handed off their armor, and donned the simple habit of the monks. It is fairly clear, however, that other people had more base motives. Some were criminals who chose to take the habit as an alternative to physical punishments. Many joined as an escape from poverty, either due to peasant backgrounds or a financial disaster. One source of recruits that was common in the early Middle Ages was the institution of so-called oblate monks. These were individuals who were put under monastic vows by their parents while very young and occasionally in utero. The parents did this in order to attain various spiritual rewards for themselves or their children. Most of the evidence we have suggests that these monks were expected to live up to these vows upon pain of damnation or physical retribution. When taken together with the dangerously Spartan lifestyle, brutal and public punishments, and the fact that a fair portion of these men and women were forced into the habit by the legal system, by poverty, or their own parents, it's easy to view the monastic life of this period as a kind of theocratic dystopia. 
but this view must be tempered by a few contrary points. Some I have already covered. Many monasteries were less harsh than others. Many of these punishments were similar to those expected on the outside, and even many of the oblate monks saw their situation as just. Beyond all these things, there were some clear advantages to the lifestyle of the monks and nuns in the early Middle Ages that it's worth discussing. First, while the rations given to the monks were intentionally meager and unappetizing, for many in the unsettled early Middle Ages, they represented an improvement over the nothing that was on offer outside the walls of the monastery. Even as things settled down in later years, the life of the peasant was one constantly poised on the knife edge of starvation. We know this from narrative sources, where monks and nuns try to recruit by pointing to the difficulties of peasant life, but we also know this from birth and death records and archaeological examinations of skeletal remains. Hunger, illness, and violence haunted the villages of the Middle Ages. The thin gruel and small glass of wine allowed to the monks once a day might have been intended as a penance, but for many peasants, the regularity of the rations must have seemed a godsend. On a similar note, despite the beatings and the occasional raid by Vikings or local lords, it does seem that monks were less likely to suffer a violent, pointy death than was standard at the time. Village records are somewhat grimly full of murder. Finally, and this is a key point in understanding the importance of the monasteries, it was considered necessary for monks to read. While maybe not the contemplative intellectuals we think of today, all solving mysteries and making salads, the monks were required to recite prayers and perform religious duties based on texts, and some amount of wrestling with scripture seems to have been a part of the deal. Given that the monks and nuns coming through the abbey doors were a mixture of Roman patricians, German warriors, starving peasants, and literal infants, the literacy of these monks was variable, to say the least. And so it was that, at a time when the private and state libraries of the Latin world were falling into neglect, and the old educational system had fallen apart entirely, the monasteries began setting up schools for the education of their members. For many monks, this education was an attraction in and of itself. The impact of these educational institutions on the rest of society is a complicated question, and it strays into an examination of the question of the relationship between the monasteries and the rest of society, which... I had planned to leave for the next episode, but that said, this is a fairly fundamental question in terms of how we view the importance of the monastic orders, so I'm going to at least start answering the question right here, right now. At a basic level, the purpose of the monasteries was not to serve as schools. The goal was the moral perfection of the individual monk and the spiritual good that that served the rest of society. Many viewed anything other than the basic routine of fasting, praying, doing heavy unpleasant labor, and getting beaten as necessary evils at best. In monasteries that lived up to these higher ideals, the abbots would often refuse permission of entry to anyone who had not taken monastic vows unless they were literally on the verge of death. These monks did not preach to the peasantry, they did not provide medical services, and they definitely didn't spread literacy across the countryside. However, this is a fairly extreme look at monastic behavior, and most monasteries did not behave in this way. But let's say for a second that this were the only type of monastery that existed. Monasteries would still be important, but their importance would be in a limited way. Such monasteries had libraries for their own use, and the texts would be copied to ensure that the books did not perish through neglect. Monks would learn from these books, and some form of intellectual discourse was carried on, but, of course, it was a fairly anemic form of intellectual life. 
But as I said, this is not the only type or even the most common type of monastic tradition that existed at the time in the records that we have. So let's explore the other extreme. And to do that, we're going to have to move beyond the foundations of Monte Cassino and continental Christianity to the British Isles and the origins of Celtic Christianity. To understand what happened here, I think first we need to discuss the issue of conversion, which is another huge topic that's beyond the scope of this episode. Um, I've kind of never been able to do it justice, and I'm not going to do it now, but here's the Cliff Notes version of this discussion. Christianity was forced to deal with the process of conversion repeatedly in its history. During the early days, of course, those was the only way it could exist or spread. You're talking about 13 guys. Uh, it spread ultimately along trade routes, probably using the Jewish diaspora as stepping stones before moving out into the wider community. Of course, once Constantine the Great was converted, the process became much easier. And once the empire was entirely converted, there wasn't much in the way of concerted efforts at conversion going on for quite some time, particularly in the West. During the period of the Germanic invasions, the pagans and heretics came to the Christians. Conversion was a process of elite Romans rubbing elbows with elite Germans. The Christian world had enough on its plate in terms of keeping what it had without trying to send missionaries out into the unknown. This was not so true of the Eastern Christian Church in Byzantium, who made conversion amongst their neighbors a key part of their foreign policy, but that's a tale for another time. In many ways, Ireland was the first case of Christian expansion into truly virgin territory since the fall of the empire, but there was a certain institutional experience that the church had built up during the years of their interactions with the Germans, because the Germans would take over areas, and the Christian life of those areas would be in some way damaged during those periods. In general, it was realized very early that conversion of an area or a people was difficult if opposed by the secular leadership. At the same time, even in the early Middle Ages, leaders could not completely ignore the opinions of their people or their neighbors, so missionaries to an area would preach, but would clearly attempt to target politically important people in order to apply pressure to the leadership. In the new Germanic kingdoms, this was much more likely to be successful by infiltrating the households of the Germanic leaders in the form of committed Roman servants, slaves, and, especially usefully, Christian wives attained through political marriages to the local Roman elites. Once the leadership was converted, they could work to impose the new religion on their subjects, though this was a long process that we'll be discussing more next episode. How conscious this effort was is not entirely clear. Uh, certainly nothing as cynical as what I just described would be written down by the scribes of the church, but there is plenty of evidence that something like this was had in mind by those who were doing conversions. Historians have come up with this picture of conversion through various snippets of writing on the subject that exist, and the general pattern that we see. Convert key people in the households of the elite, use them to create pressure on the political leadership to convert, and then impose Christianity on the rest of society. A key part of this process was the implementation of the Roman ecclesiastical administrative system as part of this process. Often the bishop of an area would be directly involved in the conversion. If there was no longer a local bishop, one would be found for you, or brought in. The bishop would base himself at the seat of political power, either physically next to the king or at the king's chosen capital. From this seat of power, the bishop would travel the countryside, converting pagan shrines into churches, and would begin appointing priests, canons, deacons, and clerics from the ranks of the local Germanic and Roman elites. Eventually, these agents would be integrated into the area's political power structure and would spread out across the countryside, bringing Christianity to the masses and, more importantly, the local nobles. 
In England, Wales, and Cornwall, some form of this method was practiced. Indeed, this was far from virgin territory. Southern Britain had been Christian since the late empire, and Wales and Cornwall had never fallen away from the faith. The Anglo-Saxon invasions had destroyed the Christian hierarchy in England, but new evidence suggests that the peasantry of England was not displaced by the invasion. So some persistence of belief may have remained, we don't really have any evidence of that, but in any case, missionaries were eventually sent from the continent who pursued conversion in the described manner. This whole setup worked pretty well, where the Germans were trying to find ways to integrate themselves into the pre-existing urban Roman power structures, where they were setting up centralized kingdoms, or where there was some form of urban life in general. The thing with Ireland is that the Irish political system was unlike anything the Roman Christians had to deal with at any time in the past. Certainly Caesar had had to deal with something like existed in Ireland, that era, but the Roman Christians had never had to try and convert something like this before. Now, I gave the political situation in Ireland something of a short shrift in the walking tour episode, but I did manage to convey that politics in Ireland were anarchic to the extreme. I don't have time for a proper description here either, but suffice it to say that while there were people who went by a title that is translated as king, they controlled very small territories and were actually fairly low in the political pecking order. They tended to actually just be the leaders of clans. Above them were kings of kings, over kings, regional kings, and the high king, all of whom had very little political authority outside of their clan's area, and whose title was often titular, but just reflected their ability to control an alliance of clans. The whole thing was a constantly shifting kaleidoscope of clan loyalties, alliances, blood feuds, and petty wars over cattle. As a result, the social structure of the place had very few pressure points, where an easy conversion could be effected. What impact this had is not entirely clear, historians are still discussing it, but Christian missionary activity ended up taking about two centuries to fully convert the island, between the years 400 and 600. Bishops were appointed and made some conversions, but they seem to have ended up attached to the courts of these petty kings, and their political reach was at least less than they had on the continent. Let's say it that way. At some point, however, monasticism made the leap to Ireland, and this took things in a very different direction. This leap is attributed to St. Patrick, of course, along with many other things, though the actual evidence we have of this is scant. Whatever the case, the idea of hermitage and monasticism suited the pre-existing beliefs and social structure of Ireland very well. Starting on cliff faces and windswept islands, monasteries were soon popping up just about everywhere, and became themselves deeply integrated with the system of clans and petty kingdoms that governed Ireland. The ability to have a bunch of monks spontaneously go found a new monastery meant that Unlike the bishops, clan politics did not limit the spread of monasticism. In fact, the urge to wander and found new monasteries, and thus make new conversions, became a key duty of these communities of monks. Ultimately, when Ireland was full up, it led to a profusion of these monasteries across Europe, founded by Irish monks. According to some historians, there was a pause in direct communication between these Irish communities with the continental monastic communities during the period of Germanic invasions. During this intermission of communication, some historians say that these Irish Christian communities developed some practices that were different from the standard line on the continent, and many historians have come to group this cultural sphere under the heading Celtic Christianity. This narrative of Celtic Christianity, describing the practices amongst the non-Germanic inhabitants of the British Isles, has its basis in evidence from the time period, though the narrative itself notably stems from the writings of the Venerable Bede, who was an English author. 
It was greatly elaborated upon and expanded by historians of a romantic and nationalist bent in the 19th and 20th centuries. Thomas Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization was a popular, if already archaic, entry into this genre in the 1990s. Modern historians note that the difference between Celtic Christianity and mainstream Christianity seems to be fairly petty in some cases, for example revolving around disputes about haircuts and the dating of Easter. Furthermore, the idea that there was any kind of uniformity in Celtic Christianity is as verifiably false as the idea that there was uniformity in mainstream continental Christianity. This was, after all, the early Middle Ages. You didn't see people from the next monastery for like 20 years at a time. Even the idea that the abbeys had completely superseded the episcopal hierarchy of the bishops has been challenged. With all of these caveats noted, though, historians do, in some cases, grudgingly accept that, broadly speaking, the practices of the British Isles were different enough from those on the continent to justify the continued use of the term Celtic Christianity, so long as it's acknowledged that this term describes a cultural sphere containing a lot of variation, and not some kind of monolithic church organization, and that there were probably other similar cultural spheres around Europe, but that maybe they had more intercommunication. So with all that said, what was life like for the monks in these Celtic monasteries? Firstly, it should just be said that their initial inspiration seems to have come via a few of the more extreme Egyptian-inspired French monastic orders. As such, the discipline imposed on the monks required a lot of fasting, praying, hard work, and brutal punishments, as we have said before. That said, the physical structuring of these communities was much more amorphous than those on the continent. There were exceptions, but the monasteries often contained fully-fledged communities, complete with families and women and children. The monks didn't have the families, there were just other people in the monastic community who weren't monks. As opposed to these more ordered continental monasteries, which were often composed of a few large buildings, Irish monasteries started out with beehive-shaped huts clustered around chapels, scriptoriums, and communal eating areas. As the monasteries grew, real dormitories were added, and there was apparently an attempt to delineate spiritual zones, places where people of different levels of spiritual purity were or were not allowed to go. Despite these attempts to preserve sacred spaces, it is clear that lay people and the monks were in many ways deeply integrated. Monks would often engage in physical labor in the fields as part of their vows, and so would many of the peasants who worked lands attached to the monastery. These peasants would thus learn agricultural techniques from the relatively better educated monks and nuns. The monks would provide healthcare services and hospitality to visitors who passed by, which was considered part of their holy mission to live like the apostles of Jesus. And it seems that contrary to some of the more harsh communities on the continent, the lay people of the monastic community in Ireland would be able to attend some services with the monks and receive religious instruction. Podcast footnote. It has been suggested by some that Irish monastic communities were particularly open to women. To be sure, there were many so-called double monasteries, with both monks and nuns in one community, but this was actually really common throughout the early Middle Ages and even in late antiquity. More interestingly, there are several examples of nuns being elected as the abbots of the community. It's possible that this was more common in the Irish monastic orders, but I can think of a number of examples of this happening in the continent. There does seem to be a sort of increase in scale in Ireland, but that may just be from the surviving sources. In any case, one of the notable features of the Irish examples is that the abbesses are given full powers to lead prayers, hear confessions, and all the other powers of abbots. This may not seem remarkable until you realize that in the modern church, many of these powers require a person to be ordained as a priest. I've not found any evidence that the women in Ireland were serving as priests per se. It does seem that the title of priest was reserved for men, but it seems that the exact powers reserved for priests were a bit up in the air at this time. 
As these powers became more specific over time, it would have a serious detrimental effect on the ability of medieval society to support and value communities of nuns. Once it was made clear that nuns could not have priestly powers of confession and saying masses and things like that, nuns became a huge net cost burden to the spiritual economy of the Middle Ages. On the one hand, nuns required priests to hear their confessions and lead their prayers. This meant that small groups of monks had to be attached to nunneries, a position that exposed the monks to high levels of scrutiny and suspicion while offering little intellectual stimulation or hope of advancement. And as such, this was a fairly despised job by the monks. On the flip side, nuns could not say masses for the souls of their benefactors, heavily reducing the incentive for generous donations. Nuns were thought of as, you know, admirable, for what it was worth. But all this was in the future. In the disorders of the early Middle Ages, women were much more equitably represented in the pursuit of spiritual perfection, and I would say that that's probably true on the continent and in Ireland. End podcast footnote. One thing that's fairly clear is that Irish monasteries had a definite evangelical element that monasteries on the continent maybe didn't engage in quite so heavily. Stone crosses were erected across the landscape, and monks would come out to the crosses on a semi-regular basis. People from around the countryside would come to hear the monks preach at these crosses, the closest thing that we might expect of a religious community before the High Middle Ages, and a major part of what underlay the final conversion of Ireland and Scotland. By contrast, it seems that monks in continental communities were not supposed to leave their monasteries without some special permission, and that this permission was supposed to be granted infrequently. That said, monks did leave the monastery regularly when they were engaged in large-scale political affairs. In any case, wandering on spiritual journeys, whether to evangelize or to go off into exile, seems to have been a key feature of the Celtic monasteries. Many devout monks felt that they needed to get away from the monasteries themselves in order to fully realize their devotion. Many others saw leaving the monastery and going off into exile as part of their penance, which will, you know, help them achieve spiritual perfection. And so it was not uncommon for monks to leave the monasteries for a while, and some of them just went off and lived as hermits and then came back. But sometimes they went off and founded new monasteries, and sometimes this was itself an intentional outcome. The ultimate result of this was, of course, the Irish eventually founding monasteries all over the British Isles, and then eventually the continent of Europe. A big part of explaining this sort of monastic social order and the way monasticism flourished in Ireland was the interaction of the monastery itself with the Irish political order. Within the monastery, all the monks answered to, and often helped elect, the abbot or abbess. But the monasteries were often founded using donations of resources from the leaders of the local clans, and the monks and community members were often composed largely of members from the local clan. But these communities were also often founded by monks from other monasteries, who owed allegiance to their old communities. Remember those monks who went wandering off. And so the allegiance of the abbot or abbess, and thus his or her monastery, was often subject to a variety of forces. Local nobles often had strong family connections to the abbess, as well as the men and women who elected her. But then the community as a whole was often subservient to a mother monastery. Confusing? Arcane? Archaic? Yes, yes, and yes. In other words, the situation fit very neatly into Irish politics. But we do see some key developments here. First, the Celtic monasteries started to develop something of a pecking order, with the older mother houses having some kind of control and influence over houses founded by their members. On the continent, by contrast, it was generally assumed that monasteries were, for all intents and purposes, independent. Second, the patronage of the secular lords made these monasteries wealthy. 
It is likely that this was happening in some form across Europe, but when combined with the new mother-daughter structure of monasticism and Ireland's relative isolation from the forces destroying the rest of Europe, this meant that some houses in Ireland got very, very wealthy indeed, and played a very major role in Irish politics. Ultimately, some monasteries, notably the Monastery of Armagh, led armies in the field. This would, of course, be a harbinger of things to come later on. Finally, we come back around to what the rise of Celtic Christianity meant to education in Europe. As on the continent, this brings us back to the question of how the monasteries interacted with the wider society. As on the continent, some were fiercely ascetic and isolationist, but in the Celtic church it seems that the imperatives of apostolic service and exile and intellectual development were emphasized over the need for mortification of the flesh and apostolic poverty, although those were definitely there too. They just weren't there to the exclusion of seeing other people in order to convert them. As I have described, many of the more powerful monasteries were very open to their communities, and energetically pursued an evangelical mission, and this affected the education system of the monasteries as well. The need to supply reading material, to teach monks, and to preach the rest of society somehow combined in Ireland to produce monasteries that put a strong focus on education. Copying books, far from a banal routine task, became a key way for the monks to commune with the divine. This was true even for secular works of pagan philosophy. The monks were trained not just to be basically literate, but to be able to use rhetorical flourishes and intricate prose to help sway and inspire the faithful and do justice to the words of God. Teachers also needed to be able to master the philosophical intricacies of Trinitarian Christianity, no small feat, let me tell you, and the curriculum that was needed to achieve these things, these rhetorical flourishes and philosophical development, could not just rely on the religious works of Augustine and Boethius. They also ended up needing to include secular, poetic, and philosophical works, albeit often ones translated by Boethius, but there were other people. In keeping with the more open nature of these communities, many of the lay people would be able to join the monks in the educational pursuits. The children of the monastery would be educated, pretty much regardless of their path in life. To be sure, many of the children were oblate monks and novices, but others were the children of elite families or just youths who showed promise. They may have been encouraged to take vows, but it was not necessarily required, and some of the leading intellectuals of the North seem to have not actually been monks, notably Alcuin. When this educational focus was combined with the monks' evangelical mission, the result was to have a deep impact on European culture. From an institutional perspective, wandering monks from Ireland founded hundreds of monasteries from Iceland to the modern Czech Republic. These communities would send monks back to their mother houses to bring copies of important books to help kickstart the educational facilities of the daughter houses. While this effort failed to save the vast, vast majority of the wisdom of the Roman Empire, it did save some, and what it did save had an important intellectual role. Much is made by modern historians about the translation movements of later centuries that brought classical works from Greek, Byzantine, and Arab, Sicilian, and Spanish sources into the mainstream of the Latin intellectual tradition. This is a very important story, but for today I just want to emphasize that for this process to have happened, there needed to be a Latin intellectual tradition. The intellectual life begun by the monastic communities of Europe, both in the Celtic sphere and in the mainstream one, preserved a version of classical learning. It preserved it in a highly stripped-down form, based on only a comparative handful of secular and religious texts, and what was saved contained a huge number of seeming contradictions and omissions. As the network of monastic schools grew, monks began to correspond on doctrinal issues, and soon a discourse began that attempted to explain and understand the contradictions and fill in the holes of what was lost in the available texts. 
The resulting intellectual tradition was highly indebted to its Roman roots. It was based on it. But it was also different. And when the classics of the Roman world were introduced, a lot of new work had to go into rectifying the old classics with what they thought they knew about the old, old classics, if you understand what I'm saying. Podcast footnote. And this is just fascinating. If I can get on my soapbox for a second. Many commentators and historians in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and I should say many people in the popular sphere now, would come to view the intellectual achievements of this era as flawed, silly, or dangerous, and therefore not worth much. Obviously, many of the conclusions of the Middle Ages were incorrect or abhorrent, but I'm kind of in love with the cultural life of the Middle Ages. Not because they were correct, to the contrary. But there is something deeply wonderful about their failures. I feel this way particularly about the philosophy and theology of the time, which I admire in sort of the same way I admire the way the auto mechanics of Cuba have kept all those old cars from the 1950s in working order. But it's a bit easier to explain what I value about the Middle Ages in terms of art. Classical art did a lot of stuff with correct perspective, correct form, correct architecture. They showed people the way we see them with our eyes. In the Renaissance, this was viewed as obviously the goal of art. But that assertion does sort of ignore the simple question of why. Why does art have to show things in photorealistic perspective? Why is that right? Of course, in modern times when we have cameras, that question maybe carries a little bit more weight. And the technical achievements of the correct perspective is obviously impressive. I can't do it. But as art moved into the Middle Ages, there's an indication that a lot of the artists of late antiquity were just kind of bored with classicism. In Byzantine art, you often see figures in something like photorealistic detail, but then they have their feet pointed down, as if they were floating. Some observers from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment have critiqued this as, you know, a failure to show proper perspective. But these are often religious scenes, and the figures are being shown intentionally as if they were floating, as if they were otherworldly. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of choices that are made in medieval art, and it's wrong to discount all of the artistic and cultural tradition of the Middle Ages as failed versions of something else, in many ways have just completely come loose from the constraints of their classical past. Certainly in the Latin West, a lot of technique was lost, but the figural art that was produced, there's a quality and there's a vitality and there's a fun that classical art just kind of lacks for me. On the one hand, medieval art is kind of like a comic strip. It aims to tell a story. But just in terms of the aesthetics, the jewel tone colors, the sense of movement, the occasional body humor mixed into deeply weighty portrayals of metaphysics, there's just a lot going on that I find interesting on its own terms. The artists often lack skill, but they make up for it with emotive stylistic choices that convey meaning even into our era. At least they do when they aren't pictures of knights with rabbit heads for some reason. Not sure what's up with that. Anyway, end podcast footnote. So, what was the importance of monasticism to Europe? Well, even the most restrictive isolationist monasteries brought new areas under cultivation, established outposts of order, preserved books, and basic literacy. Many monasteries went beyond this, helping to fully convert the peasantry, providing rudimentary medical services, educating the elite, providing safe places for people who are traveling to stay, training secular teachers, helping to drive secular politics, and sending monks to join the bureaucracy of the new political order, and teaching agricultural best practices to the peasantry. Whew. Okay. All of this reached its moment of key importance when Charlemagne began his educational reforms in 787, when Charlemagne sent for the finest scholars in Europe to come set up a school in his capital in Aachen. They did not come from nowhere. They came from the monasteries, the only source of educated people. And when Charlemagne required that every bishop also set up a school to train the priests and the clerics, the teachers, again, came from the monasteries. 
With these acts, Charlemagne began the dissemination of the accumulated wisdom of the monasteries out into the community. Furthermore, it was the bishop schools, set up in the major cities and staffed by monks, that would become the core of the European university system. And it was these universities that would allow European culture to absorb and change and run with the material coming in from the Greek and Arab worlds. In return, Charlemagne sought to help the monasteries refocus on their core mission, the moral perfection of the monks. Now, the ongoing refrain in this episode has been the lack of a universal standard for monastic orders in Europe, even in a cultural sub-region like the Celtic Church. By Charlemagne's time, it was being noted that some monasteries had grown too wealthy, that the abbots didn't seem to be responsible to anyone, and that many monasteries had become dangerously lax in the enforcement of an apostolic lifestyle on their brothers. And just in general, the Middle Ages didn't really appreciate variety. To help clarify the situation to identify what the right way was for people to live. It was suggested that one order should be used for all the monasteries. An Italian monk, Paul the Deacon, who was working at Charlemagne's court school, he suggested to Charlemagne that the rule of the monastery of Monte Cassino should be used as the basis for this new universal code. And so it was that Benedict went from being the founder of a fairly unremarkable monastery in central Italy to becoming Saint Benedict, spiritual father of Latin monasticism. One of the prime motivating factors behind this, indeed behind all of European monasticism, was a concern for the collective fate of the souls of the dead. Now stick with me here, because this is important, but it's some 10th level dark wizard mind-bending theology stuff right here. I think the best place to start is the modern Catholic idea of purgatory, but that is actually super anachronistic. Purgatory didn't really solid up as a concept until around 1000, and we're, we're a little bit before that. So purgatory is the idea that bad people go to hell, Good people go to heaven, but people who are just kind of mediocre have to pay for their sins, but they don't deserve to be punished eternally. That idea didn't exist in the thousand, like I said. But as far back as Christian antiquity, there was just, there was a belief that bad people went to hell and good people went to heaven, and that living people could pray for the souls of their loved ones who are Christians. The rationale here is really sketchy in the record, and maybe it wasn't fully thought through by the people at the time, but basically there was an idea that there was a collective social balance sheet of good and bad that was applied to everybody in society. God was seen as horribly offended by sin, and he would seek punishment against anyone who wasn't completely morally pure at the time of death of all the bad stuff that had been done. It was also felt that the bad side of the balance sheet could really just never outweigh the good side unless some extra sources of good could be found to convince God to go easy. This primarily came from Jesus, but also from the works of the saints and martyrs and good people who died with their sins fully forgiven. Enter the monks. Monks, obviously, are a huge group of theoretically holy people who spend all day racking up good points by being alive and being morally pure. In the early Middle Ages, the ideas were very sketchy and sort of ended there. Monasteries were basically sort of giant human batteries like the Matrix, except instead of producing bioenergy, whatever that is, the monks produced goodness, whatever that is, which would help propitiate a very, very angry god. To a large extent, this view persisted throughout the Middle Ages and underpins the place of the clergy as part of the triune spirit of the medieval class system. The knights who fought were responsible for creating order in this world and didn't need to worry about spiritual matters or laboring. The monks and priests were the ones who prayed and kept the goodness side of the balance sheet flush and in the black, which they could only do by keeping aloof from the temptations of the world. The peasantry worked. 
growing food needed by the others and not concerning their simple little minds with complex things like politics or the nature of the divine. They just had to do what everyone else said and everything would be fine. The work of salvation did not require the peasants or the knights to really engage much at all with Christianity. All they had to do was listen to the priests while the monks prayed for the community and ensured that everyone got into heaven. The thing to note in this metaphysical picture of Christianity in the very, very early Middle Ages is that there's really not a place for the individual. This is all very collective. As time went on, more of an individualist view of things would take shape. But in the early Middle Ages, according to this view, the importance of the clergy in general, and monks in particular, had the ramification that the organizational health of the monasteries were a matter of no small public importance. Even though the knights and the peasants, you know, didn't really need to grapple with the trinity or understand that stuff if the monasteries weren't doing their job they were all going to hell and if the monks were going to be fulfilling their duty to society they had better be super morally pure and for many secular leaders in europe such as charlemagne and those who followed his ideological example the secular leaders had a clear role in helping to ensure that things were humming along smoothly on the spiritual plane as well as the secular in some ways this idea goes back to the old testament uh, where the idea is put forward that the king is responsible for enduring the moral hygiene of the kingdom in order to keep God on side. In any case, this all created some interesting market forces as Charlemagne's empire began to fall apart. On the one hand, monasteries were becoming kind of wealthy, and the educated monks had become politically important and influential. As the empire began to fall apart, lords, in existential competition with their neighbors, of the kind that we discussed in the episodes on the nobility of the Middle Ages, uh, for these men, a monastery was a key source of power. The more sophisticated lords would, of course, attempt to use the monastery to justify their claims in the political sphere as smiled upon by God, but lords who were maybe in more difficult positions or less subtle would have seen monasteries as just a giant source of resources. Indeed, in the early Middle Ages, we see many monasteries being starved of resources during periods of chaos, as local nobles just sort of steal all their land and their stuff. Many of these closures ended up being blamed on the Vikings for many years, but new research, including documentary and archaeological research, has begun to suggest more homegrown problems. If you'd like to learn more about this, the British History Podcast has a lot of great research on this subject. In any case, be the opponent, Viking or secular lord, a community of monks had very limited ability to resist demands of people with swords during a time of chaos. Even when a monastery didn't close entirely, the influence of the local nobility could have a detrimental impact on monkly discipline. In most communities, new abbots were elected by the brothers, as we've discussed a few times. And as we've discussed in other episodes, in the Middle Ages, such elections were fairly easy to sway, and no one really thought that was necessarily a problem. A lord would just show up with some scary-looking men and observe the election. The other lords thought this was fine. Lords would often have their relatives elected, or political allies, and thus effectively take over the monastery and all of its resources. Even when the manipulation was not so direct, abbots would sometimes have to curry favor with important local lords by relaxing the discipline that was being imposed on the numerous relatives of those local lords amongst the ranks of the monkly community. Theoretically, bishops would be expected to be doing tours and ensure that monasteries were keeping up their discipline, but then the bishop was often himself in the pocket of the local lords, for pretty much the same reason. By the 900s, writers had begun to express concern that the laxity of the rules in the monasteries, which they blamed on this interference from the secular lords, was undermining the mission of the monastic communities. If the monasteries existed to pump out so much goodness that will help everyone else get into heaven, well, the monks weren't really being very good. 
and some of them just couldn't be good because they had no food. This thought even began to trouble the nobility, who after all had a responsibility to keep society humming along. The nobility had also at this point, their metaphysical world of Christianity began to individualize, began to demand that their donations to the monasteries be compensated in a little bit more of a direct way. This was a gradual process. You know, if I'm donating to your monastery, I'm going to heaven, right? Well, we're going to say prayers for everybody, but, but I'm going to heaven, right? Sure. Yes. Yes, that will happen. This was not strictly legal, but who was going to say no? The problem with this kind of investment into a monastic community in the chaos of the early Middle Ages was that a lord who was concerned for their internal, eternal soul actually couldn't be sure that the resources he donated to a monastery would be properly used. Sure, I'll give you a whole bunch of land to pray for my soul, and you'll do that while I'm alive, but after I'm dead, when I really need it, who's going to stop my kids from just taking the land back? This is quite a conundrum. One of the local lords, William I of Aquitaine, eventually found or was shown a potential solution. As many had before, William was troubled for his soul. As a secular lord, there had been so many orphans he had to kick. To ease his conscience, he established a monastery, this one in the small town of Cluny, in the Burgundian region. He endowed it with vineyards, fields, meadows, woods, waters, mills, serfs, cultivated and uncultivated lands, and he put his friend Berno in charge as abbot. The two men put together a charter for the place whereby the land given by William was very, very explicitly given in perpetuity with no backsies, and to make sure it stuck, he said very clearly that the abbot was responsible to no one except St. Peter and St. Paul, which is to say, the Pope. Not bishops, not lords, no one, the Pope. In return, William only asked that the abbey strictly follow the rule of St. Benedict, and that prayers be said for him and his posterity. This may not seem that different from what happened before, but the details here are important. The goal of this was to make it so that the local lord would have much less scope for interference with the monastic community, and due to the threat of papal displeasure if he violated the terms. Ultimately, this should allow the abbot more latitude to enforce the rule of St. Benedict and keep the abbey focused on perfection. And of course, the abbot's responsibility to the pope was, you know, theoretically there, but the pope was way over there in Italy, and who knew where that was. Podcast footnote. The story goes that Abbot Berno, after this had all been set up, traveled to Rome to get the pope's specific permission for the setup. And he got the permission, and that was that. What they don't tell you is that the pope at the time was Sergius III, who was Sergius III? Well, if you remember back to our episodes on Italy, Sergius was the former anti-pope who had been put in power by Magister Militum Theophylact and his wife Theodora. Now, it's possible that the approval of the Charter of Cluny was just some paperwork that Theophylact delegated to his puppet. But actually, Theophylact was himself a very eager and determined monastic reformer. He did a lot to reform the monastic communities in central Italy around Rome. There was certainly a practical political side to this in bringing order to the landscape, but there are certainly other ways that he could have done this, and investing in monasteries was clearly something that Theophylact cared about, given the other evidence we have. So it seems likely to me that Theophylact was happy to approve the project and probably had a hand in it, and also that, once again, the historical image we get of this historical figure from Leut Prand of Cremona is not particularly reliable. And podcast footnote. Now, call me cynical, but I really kind of doubt that having a piece of paper that said no backseas and we mean it this time would have served, all on its own, but William and Berno were actually somewhat lucky in their timing. By 910, when Cluny was fully founded, Europe was beginning to stabilize. It wasn't fully there yet, but it was stabilizing. 
While Burgundy was in some ways a border region in this new Europe, it was also very agriculturally productive and basically stable in a way that areas further south in Provence were not. It's also worth saying that over the next century, the power of the Dukes of Aquitaine slipped from basically controlling the entirety of southern France to shrinking back down to the western part of France, leaving Cl the Cluny Monastery with much less formidable opponents who might be less likely to court the wrath of the Pope. With these circumstances as a background context, the resulting perception of the monks of Cluny as particularly worthy made donations to their order very popular. After all, why trust your eternal soul to a bunch of gluttons who are potentially in the pocket of a rival noble family when you can get on the fast lane to heaven town with the prayers from Cluny? With these resources, the abbot of Cluny would go on to found several monasteries, which itself became a key change to the Benedictine formula. Again, in the Benedictine formula, the houses were supposed to be autonomous. The Cluniac monasteries began to use the old Celtic concept of a mother house. Rather than each abbot being answerable to their local lord or answerable only to the pope, the head of each monastery was technically just not an abbot. They were a representative of the abbot of Cluny, and these representatives were known as priors. The priors would meet once per year to make reports and discuss matters important to the order. Podcast footnote, I haven't been able to determine if this is true for the Cluniacs, but if they operated like later orders, the priors would also elect the new abbot of Cluny after the previous head of the order died. End podcast footnote. This whole organization of Cluny is independent from the Pope, and having this larger structure above the abbeys represents a major change from what went before for a number of reasons. Beyond the religious elements, Cluny became, in effect, the first genuinely recognizable church bureaucracy in Europe. The ecclesial hierarchy of bishops and archbishops was extant and looked to Rome as their legitimate leader, but they were also deeply entwined with local politics and often broke down along political boundaries as Charlemagne's empire fragmented. But Cluny represented something new. This network of religious houses was, by design, more loyal to the church as a concept than to local lords or political leaders. And while the Cluniac order was less focused on proselytizing than the Celtic monasteries had been, maybe, they retained a strong educational opponent. When combined with the continent-spanning communications network, this educational development allowed Cluny to drive discourse and opinion in the political and educated classes in a way that no force in Europe had since the fall of the Latin Empire. This had two key ideological outcomes. First, the Cluniac monks were convinced that the Pope was the legitimate head of the church, this is an old idea, stick with me. In other places, it was probably not clung to quite as much as it was in Cluny, where the Pope was the guarantor of their independence. The second idea is also an old idea. Monks had long argued that the world was imperfect, and that the only way to gain salvation was through gaining distance from the world of the secular. Intrusions of the secular world into the spiritual world were inherently bad. When these two old ideas were combined in this Cluniac context, a radical new idea kind of flung itself to the forefront of European thought. No longer a distant and benevolent resolver of disputes, the Pope was increasingly seen as the legitimate source of desperately needed reform, and that reform could only come from power. This reform should be achieved through persuasion if possible, but if that couldn't happen, it should and could be imposed on the Church from Rome. These ideas found welcome adherents already on the ground within the mass of the Church, and definitely in Rome. In the long run, Cluny's function as a continental network of educational institutions, which was able to quickly share ideas, would serve to reinvigorate the church with this new vision, and push this Cluniac ideology of papal reform and monarchy. 
While these results were not necessarily intentional for William of Aquitaine, Cluny became a tool for the rapid dissemination of ideas and directives across Europe. With Irish monasteries increasingly ruined by a combination of Viking raids and aristocratic venality, and the educational reforms of Charlemagne definitively tottering, Cluny came in at just the right time and stabilized education in Europe. From the school of its mother house, a number of great thinkers would emerge, many of whom would help stabilize European society in terms beyond education. Some of them entered the court of Otto I and helped kick off the Etonian Renaissance. Others helped reform the Norman Church, and as part of that mission, brought the Cluniac Order to England. The Mother House lent its considerable prestige to the new Capetian monarchy in western Francia, thus helping to stabilize what we now know as France. But the final dramatic result of this change would be the reinvigoration of the entirety of the church from the top. This happened because amongst the students at Cluny was, for a short time, one Hildebrand of Savannah who was exiled from the continued fight over the papacy between the descendants of Otto and the Theophylact clan. Hildebrand was enthusiastic about the organizational excellence of Cluny and their spiritual rigor and their ideas. For their part, the Cluniacs had, as we have seen, become very influential and begun to press for systematic reforms to the Catholic Church. Hildebrand would produce a number of influential theological and philosophical works, and with this under his belt, he would eventually be elected Pope, taking the name of Gregory VII. It was Gregory who would complete the process of establishing a Catholic Church that we would find recognizable today. At the time of Gregory's election, educational reforms were well underway in the hierarchy of the Church, but these had begun to throw the structural problems of the Church into sharp relief. In brief, the appointment of bishops and priests was, to modernize, extremely corrupt, and resulting in the appointments of people who were unable to fulfill the functions for which they'd been appointed. To massively oversimplify in the name of time, Gregory established or forcefully reasserted rules like a priest needs to be able to say mass, a priest can't pass his office to his son, which he shouldn't have, church offices cannot be purchased, and appointments to church offices should be carried out by the established authorities, namely the church. These efforts would lead Gregory to have many adventures, and would dramatically change the way the mass of the faithful related to the hierarchical structure of the church. These adventures and the changes that they entailed will have to wait, because we are already well past an hour. In the last two episodes, we discussed the origins of the hierarchy of the Latin Catholic Church. The conventional Episcopal hierarchy was organized geographically like the old Roman Empire, based on urban bishoprics who presided over priests and in turn looked to archbishops and the papacy to mediate conflicts and help set doctrine. This hierarchy was based on the idea of succession from the apostles of Jesus. As European feudalism rose in Europe, it merged with this Episcopal hierarchy, and the bishops became, in effect, lords of domains. As with the feudal lords, the bishops of the early Middle Ages had an extremely large amount of latitude, and the authority of the Pope was in many ways minimal. Monasteries have similarly ancient origins, and came to serve as spiritual batteries for their society, focused strictly on the perfection of the soul of the individual monks in order to benefit the community at large, these communities were thought to add so much goodness to the world as to reduce the time that everyone would have to spend in what eventually became known as purgatory. These monasteries contained the last functional schools in Europe and came to serve as feeders for the court and the cathedral schools being established by Charlemagne and his eventual successors. Initially, each monastery operated in isolation but the predations of the nobility led the monastery in Cluny to place itself under the protection of the Pope and organize an international order of Cluniac priories that helped to unify the intellectual life of Europe as never before. As a result of this institution, 
the Roman Church in Europe, for the first time really, had something that we would actually see as an organized hierarchy and a coherent structure. The implications of this and the continued process will be discussed in the next episode. So it just remains for me to thank the new donors and patrons that we've gotten since the last episode, or since the last time I thanked everybody. Things have been kind of busy on my end, and so I may have lost track of people. If your name isn't on this list and you've donated recently, uh, just drop me a line, and uh, I will be sure to give you a snarky regnal name if you desire it. But as far as patrons go, we have Roy, whose agreement to support this podcast on a monthly basis makes him worthy of his chosen cognomen, Lord Roy of Bubonic Vibrations. We also have Altcode, who is similarly worthy of honor and praise, and shall now be known as Baronet Altcode, the Substitute. On the donor side of things, Andy, who shall be known from here forward as Sir Andy, the firm but not unpleasant afternoon breeze. We also have Pamela, who shall be known from hereafter as Lady Pamela, the unexpectedly royal. If you, too, would like to make a secure PayPal donation to this show or become a patron, go to the show's website, uh, wittenberg-to-westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the store page. And there you'll see buttons that can take you to either PayPal or Patreon. There are a variety of benefits for becoming a donor, but I am very behind on sending them out. My apologies. Anyway, thank you one and all to our patrons and donors, and to you for listening. Also, a special thanks to Andrew Fancook, our editor, who definitely makes this show possible. Uh, be sure to check out the website, the Facebook, and all that stuff, and be sure to leave a five-star rate and review on iTunes, or uh, Apple, Pot, whatever the heck they're calling it these days, and whatever it is that you listen upon. And again, be sure to tune in next time to Wittenberg to Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.